Let's open up our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Our text tonight is the first two verses of that chapter, which we'll reread later. But let's read right now the entirety of Hebrews 12. This is the word of God. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons, For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if he be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees, And make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men, and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled." lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more, for they could not endure that which was commanded. 
And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But ye are come unto Mount Sion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, how much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven? whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Thus far we read the word of God. Let's reread the text, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, our text tonight is the grand conclusion of Hebrews chapter 11. The children of here, here are familiar with Hebrews 11. Perhaps some of you or all of you have at one point memorized Hebrews 11 or many parts of it. Saints like Abel and Enoch, and Abraham, and Sarah, and Moses. And what Hebrews 11 teaches us is that these saints and more lived by faith, which is why you have that repeating phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith. They clung to the promises of God, they believed the promises of God, and yet those promises were not fulfilled during the saints' lives on earth. Now, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, is a conclusion to that chapter 11. 
And that's indicated by the word wherefore at the beginning of our text. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed with so great a cloud of witnesses. It's drawing a conclusion there with wherefore. And it's talking here, obviously, about running a race. That's what we're exhorted to. Run the race. That's what the Christian life is compared to. And it's as if we're surrounded on all sides by these saints that were mentioned in Hebrews 11 in the sense that we look at them as an example and a witness for us as we sprint forward down the racetrack. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run. That's the exhortation before us tonight. In any race, we need to have encouragement. The race of the Christian life is no exception to that either. We need to have encouragement. So did these people to whom the writer of Hebrews was writing. The audience here was experiencing persecution on some level, and they were tempted to revert back to Judaism, to go back to the bondage of works righteousness and the terribleness of that. They're tempted to do that. They're becoming weary in their race. And so he comes to them with this exhortation, Christians, you who are tempted in this way and you who are you who are persecuted, keep on running by the grace of God. Not only did they some 2,000 years ago need that sort of encouragement, you do too. And so do I. So let's hear this word of God preached tonight under the theme, Running the Race. In the first point, the race. Second, the encouragement. And then third, the possibility. Verse 1 obviously uses a metaphor to describe the Christian life, and the metaphor that's used is that of a race. Verse 1, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. This would have been a very familiar term and idea to people in those ancient days because the Greeks had their Olympics, and in their Olympics they had racing. People would run, sometimes a very lengthy race, a marathon, other times a shorter track race. But at any rate, these people knew what the writer, the Hebrews, this book was talking about and it's very familiar to us, too. Running. If you ask, why is the Christian life described in terms of a race? It's because just as someone who is running down a road sweats, and the sweat stings his eyes, and his heart feels like it's going to burst out of his chest, and his lungs are burning, and his legs feel like jello, just like there is extreme difficulty in an earthly race, 
so also is the Christian life very, very difficult and exhausting. I want to call out two elements of the Christian race. Just like there are a couple of elements in an earthly racing, so also in the spiritual race, two things. Number one, just as there is found a track in earthly racing, so also is there a track in the Christian race. And that road, that path, that track is the Christian life. It has a starting line. The starting line is regeneration, when we're made alive by the Spirit of God. The finish line of the track is when, through death, the Lord Jesus Christ takes us into heavenly glory. Between those two is the life of the Christian. That's the track. Notice with me that this track has been laid down by God. That's the end of verse 1. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. It has been set down. It's been placed there. And the one who has placed that racetrack of your life in exactly the way that it is, is God himself. From even before the foundation of the world, from eternity, in his sovereign counselor plan, he has, as to every detail of what the road you take looks like, he's mapped it all out. Isn't that already so comforting? The things you're facing in your life right now, the dips, the turns, the thorn in the foot, the deep valley and the mountaintops, none of those things are a surprise to God. He doesn't become ever wide-eyed, as it were, with amazement and throw up his hands and say, I never expected that to happen. He's not surprised by it because he's the one in the sovereign council who has determined your life in every detail. That's such a comfort. You don't know what's going to happen in the very next minute as you're sitting here in church, much less next week or next month or next year. But the Lord does. He's laid it out. About this racetrack itself... It's also very difficult. I mentioned that briefly before, but I want to elaborate on that a bit. That word race in verse 1, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. If you read that word in Greek, the original language, it would jump out to you that the Greek word sounds like agony. Because that's what the Word of God is communicating here. The race is agonizing. It's so hard. And just like that earthly runner feels exhausted and sweat pouring down and laboring as he runs, so the Christian life, there's nothing easy about it. Very difficult. And that's why, we'll come back to this later, the end of verse 1 calls us to run with patience, a steadfastness exactly because 
It's very, very hard. So as in any earthly race, also in the spiritual one, there's a trap. Another element found in an earthly race, also in the spiritual one, is runners. Of course, runners go on the track. Verse 1 refers to those runners, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. The runners in the historical context, as I mentioned before, are these Christians to whom the writer of the Hebrews is penning this letter. They're tempted to forsake the race. We explain that. Revert back to Judaism. They're being persecuted. Well, we just go back to this idea of works righteousness. And so he tells them to run. So those Christians are the runners in this context. But we could say this. The runners are the church. The body of Jesus Christ. These are not so many random individuals that happen to be running down the same path together. This is a collective group. This is a body that's sprinting and making progress forward. And there's something even there, isn't it? You never run alone. Sometimes it seems that way. As it does to me, is anyone with me? Am I going through this all by myself? Sometimes our life can seem very, very isolated and lonely. The Word of God reminds us here, you run rubbing shoulders with other people. They're here, they're here, they're here, they're here. And the runners that are going with you down the track are these people. These people. You don't run alone. We can say about the runners, besides the fact that they're the church, they're the elect of God. You see, God has not only determined from eternity the racetrack itself, He hasn't only mapped out your life in his sovereign plan as to its every detail, but the implication is he has determined from before the foundation of the world also who the runners on the track are going to be too, those whom he has chosen in Jesus Christ, that certain definite number of men called the elect. And one other way that we can identify the runners besides the church and besides the fact that they're elect is that they are those to whom God has given the gift of faith. Look at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The ones making progress down the path are those who have been united as branches to the vine, engrafted into Jesus Christ, and who receive all of his strength, his power, for the running of the race, but they're those two for whom that bond of faith has become activity so that they look unto Jesus as they're going down the racetrack. 
They look to him. The runners are those who have been given the gift of faith. He says, now, he exhorts you and me, run that race. Run it, he says. Picture in your mind a man going down a track. He's not walking. Don't picture that. He's not even going at a light jog. He is sprinting forth with all speed, making progress forward as fast as he can. That is the picture that you need to have in your mind now, spiritually sprinting forth down the racetrack that God has laid before us. What exactly does it mean to run the race? I trust we all know tonight that the writer here does not mean use your physical legs and maybe run through church or run home or something like that. Of course not. To run the race spiritual race is to live our lives by faith. And I say that because this comes, remember, as the conclusion of all of chapter 11. Look at what those saints were doing. By faith, so-and-so did this. By faith, so-and-so did that. They lived their lives, they did what they did, always with an eye to God, trusting in Him in all things. Live their lives by faith. And that's what running the race means for us too. Whatever we're doing, looking to our God, relying upon Him and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Running the race means not only living our lives by faith, but also living in submission to the will of God. Look at Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 26. This is about Moses. And it says there, starting at verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Here's Moses. He's growing up in the palace of Pharaoh as an adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, he could have had anything. Educational opportunities, wealth that you can't believe. So many windows could have opened up to him in his position there. And yet, in submission to the will of God, he'll be among the Hebrews. The Hebrews, lowly people. It required sacrifice and difficulty of him. That's what it means for your life, too, that you run the race. You submit to the will of God, even when that's hard. 
even when that requires much sacrifice and even pain of you, and it might demand just about everything you are and everything that you have. To support a Christian school. To give in the church. To really help and assist and be with one's spouse, not just when things are well, but when things are not well too. And to really give ourselves for our children. And you can now multiply that by a hundred more examples. Christian life is going to demand of you much sacrifice. That's submission to the will of God. Running the race means living our lives by faith, submission to God's will. Also this, that we do and that we will suffer persecution. Just go back to that example of Moses in Hebrews 11, verse 25. He chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God. Moses was persecuted, faced many troubles. And I know that we do not face in this country what many saints in the church face abroad. You might say that we experience a softer form of persecution, but it's there and it hurts in a lot of ways. And severer persecution, you can be sure, is to come. In your lifetime and mine, I don't know, but it's coming. And that's a part of running the race. Because there's so much suffering and because there is so much difficulty, that's why that patience is required there at the end of verse 1. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. A steadfastness because there are dips and turns and valleys and high mountains, predators along the way. Keep on running, unmoved by all of these things. And that leads me to say, we're not only exhorted to run the race, there's a manner in which we're commanded to do that. A manner. Look at verse 1 again. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run, and so on. A weight. Is anything that hinders your running? A weight is anything that you might say is an encumbrance to you and, and sort of tangles you up. If you were watching the Olympics, next time that comes around, the Summer Olympics, and a man came up to the starting line with snow pants on and a winter coat and boots, you would say, what is he doing? He's supposed to be running a race and he has all this stuff on. It's going to slow him down. It's going to tangle him all up. It's an encumbrance to him. He has to take that coat off and those snow pants and those boots and then run. It's no different for the Christian life, that race. 
like I said, a weight is anything that hinders or is encumbrance. What is that for you? What is that for me? Is it your hobby? The thing you like to do? And it's legitimate. There's nothing wrong with it in itself. But it hasn't become too much. Could it be that phone in my pocket? There's a place for it, for sure. Has it taken up too much of me? Is it, beloved, simply this, that in our homes, we're just too worldly-minded? And again, maybe not things that are wrong in themselves, but we're so taken up, we're so absorbed with the things of this earth and, and giving ourselves to them. Is your race being hindered right now? A specific weight that's given here is called the sin which doth so easily beset us. A besetting sin is one that encircles you. It, 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 it ensnares you. It's like a fly buzzing around a room, and then all of a sudden he flies into a cobweb, and that sticky silk wraps all around him and tangles them all up. That's what sin, especially some sins, have the ability to do. Like the silk of a spider web, tangle us all up. Pornography, abuse of alcohol, gossip, and many, many other sins that control our mind and our body. What is your, what is my besetting sin? It has to be put off. That's part of the exhortation here. Let us lay aside every weight, just like that man. He's going to take his snow pants off and his boots and his winter coat and run with wholehearted dedication on the path ahead of him. Let us lay aside, beloved, anything that would encumber or hinder our race, and especially any sin that would seek to entangle us. Let us cast it off, and in the strength of Jesus Christ, by the almighty grace of God, sprint, sprint, with a wholehearted devotion and dedication. Don't you need encouragement in the running of this race? I certainly do, and you do too. Part of that encouragement that we're given is at the beginning now of verse 1. Seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses... There are witnesses, and they are for us an encouragement as we run forth in this race. Those witnesses that are being referred to there are 
the saints in Hebrews 11. Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, and on and on. Those are the witnesses. The witnesses are also those believers that you know personally who have already finished their race, crossed the finish line, and are presently in glory. Those are the witnesses too. A grandpa, grandma, brother, sister, father, mother, or friend. They're called witnesses. Now, there's a wrong interpretation here. The wrong interpretation that some have is this. That these Old Testament saints and these believers that we know who have already gone on to glory, that it's like they're all around us and they're looking at us down from heaven as we are running the race. So the idea they're looking at us, they're observing our race. And I say again, that interpretation is wrong. That's not what the verse means. It's not witnesses in the sense that they're looking on us. But the truth of the text, what it does mean is this. They're witnesses in the sense that they have left behind a testimony or an example for us to see as we run the race. And we look at that testimony and example as we run. They're called a great cloud of witnesses. Just like a cloud is made up of millions and millions of raindrops and, and ice crystals, you might say there's a mass of those sorts of molecules in a cloud. So also, there's a mass of Old Testament saints all around, as it were, the racetrack that we're running. And as we run, we observe that mass in the stands around the track. Here you are, running in your Christian life. And you're coming up to a bend, and you have no clue what's coming next. Now, of course, we never know what's coming in our future, but there are some points in our life where the future is very uncertain. And just as you're coming to this bend, look, look, there's Abraham, as it were, in the stands. And Hebrews 11 has left for us this testimony or example of Abraham. He went about not knowing where God was leading him, yet he walked by faith. Or, here you are in your Christian life and you're tempted to doubt God's promises because your race is becoming so exhausting. And then suddenly you look over here, as it were, in the stands. There's Sarah. And her testimony is on the pages of Scripture here in Hebrews 11. It says that she judged God faithful who promised to give her seed. And then as you're running and you're tired and you feel as if you're unable to press forward, as at many points in the Christian life we feel, you remember your mother, your father, your grandpa or your grandma or your friend, that believer 
who has already crossed the finish line and been taken to glory and the testimony that they have left behind by the grace of God. Can you see now why this great cloud of witnesses is such an encouragement to us in our race? They've run it before us. Sometimes it can feel that we're the first ones to run the race and the first ones to experience this or that thing in the Christian life and and no one has really had this trial before. Now it's true. Your racetrack is unique from other people's in certain ways. We're not the first ones to go down the road. Many have gone down before us. That's an encouragement in itself. But especially this. They have sprinted the course, and they've been brought by God across the finish line, and they now have glory and rest from their agonizing race. Sometimes it can seem for us, beloved, as if the miles are so long. My life and its agonies and trials so long. But the Lord has brought them across the finish line and they have glory. And I will have that too. Whenever the racetrack designer has designed and planned for my finish line to come. What an encouragement. In this race, we're also and especially encouraged by Jesus Christ himself. The race that he Ran. Look at verse 2 now. Looking unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus ran his own race. The starting line was the incarnation when the Son of God took to himself flesh. The finish line for Jesus Christ was, of course, his entrance into glory and the rest there. But between those points, agonizing race for him. He begins on the racetrack, a baby. And then a young boy. And then a teenager. And then a young adult. And all that while, sometimes we don't remember that, he's already suffering under the wrath of God for our sins and in our place. And he enters into his public ministry, that wrath of God becomes even more concentrated. Steadily, he's heading toward that accursed tree. Until finally, he enters a phase of his race where he must go down into a dark, deep valley. The wrath of God especially poured out at the cross. And he continued running his race through that darkness, undergoing the wrath of God for our sins. Text talks about shame. Shame. Shame is pain associated with guilt and humiliation. The shame that Jesus knew, of course, was not associated with his own guilt. He didn't have any of his own guilt. 
but it was the shame associated with the sins and guilt of his people that were imputed to him. So here's the sin bearer, and he experiences so much shame. They take that crown of thorns and they press it on his head. They mock him and they ridicule him. They even strip him of his garment so that may very well have been that he hung on the cross completely naked. That shame. The text says that he endured the cross. A baby, a boy, a teenager, young man entering into his public ministry all that way he never turned to the right, never turned to the left, never swerved because he minded some distraction over here or here, but he kept a steady course sprinting all the way to that tree, kept on running. And then when he was on the cross itself, oh, there the devil was especially trying to get him down. He refused to come down, says the scripture. He stayed there. He was patient in his suffering, and he never ran away until his course was completed. And one other thing, it says about his suffering, he despised the shame of the cross, which means, children, he thought very little of that shame. You know why? Because he knew the finish line was coming. Because he knew the weight, the heaviness of glory which he would have after his suffering was completed. What is this shame? What is this suffering compared to the weight of glory he would have? He thought little of. He despised the shame. So he pressed on constantly toward that goal that the Father had set before him, never distracted. And mind you, Satan, that's what he was always trying to do. When I teach the temptations in catechism, I emphasize to the students, the devil is trying to make Jesus go like this so that he doesn't go to the cross. devil's trying to distract doesn't this path look good? Doesn't this way look a lot better? Easier? He kept straight on. And he reached that goal. He crossed the finish line. And the scripture says here, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Suffering, crucified, dead and buried, risen and ascended, Lord Jesus Christ. In heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. A throne. He has all authority. He has all rule and power. What glory that is for Jesus Christ. And do you notice? He sits at the right hand of the throne of God. His agonizing race is all done and now in perfect, blissful, glorious rest 
he sets. That's the goal for Christ. Is that not an encouragement to you? Let's be careful here. The race that Jesus ran is unique. He suffered under the outpoured wrath of God, an atoning suffering. Your suffering is not that. So there is definitely a difference there between his race and ours. And yet there is a common element. He suffered. He ran an agonizing race. And in some senses, we do too. He kept his eye on the goal, as we must, and the end for him was glory, as it will be for you. To this, Jesus, we must look, look with the eye of faith, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. That's where our strength is. That's where the possibility of our running this race is, in Christ alone. When I was in cross-country in high school, I was told, and we were told, as you're running, don't look at the ground don't look at distractions here and over here. Keep your eyes up. Keep them ahead. No different instruction is given with the spiritual race. Looking unto Jesus with that faith as an eye, a spiritual eye. We're united to Christ one with him as a branch is engrafted into the vine, receiving all his strength and his power so that we can run the race. But that bond of faith becomes activity. And that's what's referred to here, looking unto Jesus. That's the activity of faith. He's the author and the finisher of that faith. He's the author of it. The race that he ran, the most agonizing part of it was in that deep, dark valley of the cross where he paid for our sins. By that very race that Jesus ran, he purchased for us faith. And he gives that as a gift by his spirit working that faith not only but continually strengthening that faith, oh yes, he's the author of it. He's the finisher too. He brings that faith to the goal, the goal. One day, beloved, he's going to make your faith to be sight. And what you cling to now, look to, you believe and trust, one day will be made sight. 
when he brings you across that finish line by his grace and you stand in glory before the face of Jesus Christ and look upon him and gaze upon him forever. What a day that's going to be. What a day. He's the finisher of our faith. We run with that eye of faith trained upon Jesus. In ourselves, we have no strength. You try to run, I try to run the Christian life in our own strength. In what power we think we have, you're going to fall immediately. You're going to stumble. There you're going to lie in the racetrack. We cannot do it in ourselves at all. We don't look here. We don't look here. We don't look there. And at this person, at that person, we look there, Jesus, because he's the only strength that we have. And in him is everything that we need, an abundant strength to keep on pressing on. Look at him, not with a few glances now and again. A quick look and then down. But let us run the entirety of our race with the eye of faith steadily on him. Amen. Father in heaven, quicken our legs to run the race that is set before us. Press upon us by thy spirit the comfort and the encouragement of this text. Make loudly known to us and apply to our lives the exhortation also that we have been given. And supply us with that grace that we need to keep sprinting the road which lies ahead. Hear us, Father, of mercy. For Jesus Christ, our suffering, risen, ascended, and soon coming Savior. Amen. Amen.